Hey everybody, Curtis here. I know it's been a while since we have recorded one of our sermons and put it up. With school starting and our series on Jeremiah ending, we decided to take a little break. But these two weeks after the election, we have done sort of a mini-series called World Gone Mad, and we've had a few people ask if we could record them and put them up, and so we're doing that. So what follows is the sermon that I preached the Sunday after the election, the first of two in our little mini-series, World Gone Mad. So that's what you'll hear in just a sec. Well, I'm not sure how many of you noticed, but there was an election this week. Yeah, who knew? I have certainly felt over these months leading up to this, and I know many of you have as well, this, this sense that the world has gotten a little less understandable over the past four years. Things are a little crazier, a little less stable than we would like to believe. It feels sometimes like the world's gone mad. And I'm starting here with a global view of this, for obvious current events reasons, but we all know this feeling in a more personal way as well, where the things in our own smaller worlds also feel like they've gone mad, like the world just isn't as it should be. This week I was trying to use my printer to scan a document and have it emailed to myself as a PDF, and it was like I was in a video game, with an endless series of levels of progressively harder challenges that I had to overcome to do what seems like it ought to be a pretty simple task. And I was about at the point of just throwing my printer out the window. And this seems trivial, but I realized that what was actually going on is that I needed to finish this project. Because then there was another project, writing this sermon, in fact, that then would give way to the next project, and then the next, and the next. And here this simple one that I thought was going to take five minutes actually took hours. And meanwhile, the projects just kept piling up with no end in sight. And what should be an ordinary, neat, tidy to-do list just falls apart. And the whole day gets thrown off because of what should have been a simple little project. But of course, this sense of our world gone mad happens all the more in the less trivial parts of our lives. Our relationships, our jobs, our school, our families. The specifics might be different for each of us, but we all have this experience at times where things just aren't as they should be. Where our world has gone mad. It's out of control, and we're stuck in the middle of it, alone. What do we do then? What do we do when the world's gone mad? Maybe a more important version of that question for us today is how do we follow Jesus together into a world gone mad, whether in the global sense or in the personal? And so these next two weeks, we're going to look at a couple of ways of answering those questions. Not the only answers, but two of the ones that we see in the Bible of how God's people have responded to a world gone mad. The Bible talks about us as Jesus' followers being conformed to the image of Christ, that we're supposed to be imitators of Jesus and pick up our cross and follow him. And so the place we're going to start this week is by asking what it means to look like Jesus when the world has gone mad. Maybe the best place to go for this is the cross, which might sound a little cliche, I'll admit, But there's a reason Paul goes back to the crucifixion over and over again in his letters. We as Christians believe that it is, in many ways, the central event in all of history. The cross is a turning point. It was kind of a big deal, you might say. And for our topic today, it matters because what we believe to be true about what happened to Jesus on the cross means that the crucifixion is the premier example of the world gone mad. You cannot have the world get any further from how it should be than when people decide to crucify God's son, Emmanuel, God with us. 
It doesn't get any more disorientingly, wildly upside down than that. I think that's part of why the disciples have such a hard time wrapping their minds around what Jesus keeps telling them about what is coming. Surely, surely you're mistaken, Jesus. The world can't possibly be so upside down that God's son would get crucified, right? But of course it happens. And then we are able to see Jesus's response to a world gone mad in both the global sense, but for him, a very personal one as well. He himself is enduring the effects of the madness of the world. And in Matthew 27, verse 46, we read, And about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or why have you forsaken me? Growing up, I always heard that this is showing Jesus experiencing the full punishment for the sin of the world, that Jesus has been separated from God and is experiencing the abandonment for the first time under the crushing weight of sin. And so he quotes the first verse of Psalm 22 to communicate his despair at this fate, the same fate that awaits all those who don't believe. This sounds like it makes sense, especially under certain assumptions about the atonement, but if you actually read Psalm 22, And what the writer of those words, the ones Jesus chooses to quote, what the writer actually meant by them, it makes a lot less sense. I also heard a lot about how the way the writer of Psalm 22 describes his own situation mirrors the experience of crucifixion in some striking ways, which you'll probably hear in a second. But I heard far less about what Psalm 22 is actually about, which seems like a relevant piece of information for us when we try to understand what Jesus was intending to say by quoting those words on the cross. And so I'm going to read the full psalm because, again, when you look at some of the details of the psalm itself, I don't think there's any doubt that this whole psalm is what Jesus is saying, right at the point that his world has gone mad. So as I read this, I want you to imagine Jesus saying all of these words on the cross. My God, my God, why did you abandon me? Far from my deliverance, my bellowing words. My God, I call by day and you do not answer. By night and I have no quiet. But you sit as the Holy One, the great praise of Israel. In you, our ancestors trusted, trusted and you rescued them. They cried out to you and they escaped. They trusted you and were not shamed. But I am a worm, not a human being. The reproach of others despised by people, all who see me mock me, open their mouth wide, shake their head, commit it to Yahweh, he must rescue him, he must save him since he likes him, they say, for you are the one who made me break out of the womb, making me trust on my mother's breast, on you I was thrown from birth, from my mother's womb you were my God, do not be far away from me, because trouble is near, because there is no one to help. Mighty steers have surrounded me. Strong ones of Bashan have closed about me. They have opened their mouths at me like a tearing, roaring lion. I have been poured out like water. All my bones have come loose. My heart has become like wax. It has melted inside me. My vigor has dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue is stuck to my palate. You put me in deathly dirt, for dogs have surrounded me. An assembly of wrongdoers has encircled me like a lion at my hand and my feet. As I count all my bones, they take note and look over me. They divide my garments among themselves, cast lots for my clothing. But you, Yahweh, do not be far away. 
my strength hasten to my help. Save my life from the sword, my very self from the power of the dog. Deliver me from the mouth of the lion. May you have answered me from the horns of the buffalo. I will tell of your name to my kindred. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who trust in Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, honor him. Be in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised, nor has he loathed the lament of the weak. He has not turned his face from him. But when he cried for help, listened to him. From you will come my praise in the great congregation. My promises I will fulfill before the people who trust in him. Weak people will eat and have their fill. Those who seek help from him will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth must be mindful and turn to Yahweh. All the families of the nations must bow low before you, for sovereignty belongs to Yahweh. He rules among the nations. All the well-to-do of the earth have eaten and bowed low. All those who are going down to the dirt kneel before him, people who could not keep themselves alive. Their offspring will serve him. A generation to come will be told of my Lord. They will tell of his faithfulness to a generation unborn that he acted. These are not the words of a person who has been punished by God and feels the weight of sin upon themselves. These are not the words of someone who has been abandoned by a God who cannot bear to be in the presence of sin. These are the words of someone who trusts God, who is suffering through the world gone mad and who is calling on God to act on their behalf, to put things right again. These are the words of someone who looks back at all the times God has acted on behalf of those who trust in God throughout history, who sees their own present situation in a world gone mad and who chooses not to despair, but to call on God to do what God has done before. And then, one who looks forward to the day when generations unborn will hear about the great things that this God has done on behalf of those who trust in Yahweh. John Golden Gay in his commentary on Psalms puts it this way, My God and abandon do not fit easily in the same sentence. The talk of Yahweh abandoning the worshiper contrasts with the many expressions of conviction that Yahweh does not do that sort of thing, that that is not who God is. Psalm 22 looks back to all the times that God has delivered God's people, and it is intended to call attention to the present reality that God is not acting on behalf of this person who trusts God to do so. And importantly, there is no hint of the sin of the writer of this psalm causing God to pull away from him. Much to the contrary, the writer is absolutely sure that precisely because he trusts in Yahweh, God will come through and save him, that God will act on his behalf, that despite God not having responded yet, God will deliver him. This is what Jesus was calling out on the cross when the world has gone mad. Yes, he only quoted the first line, but Hey, you try reciting that whole psalm while hanging on a cross. Jesus was voicing his anguish and suffering and calling on God to come close and deliver him. 
Jesus was affirming his trust that despite the appearances, God had not, would not abandon him, that God would act on his behalf, and that the story of God's action of deliverance would be told to generations unborn and to all the nations. In some ways, when you take the context of the full Psalm 22 seriously, Jesus's words on the cross are intended to mean almost the opposite of what I grew up being told they meant. This is not Jesus torn apart from God because of sin, despairing. That's not what Psalm 22 is about. This is Jesus defiantly affirming his trust in God to act to deliver the weak who are suffering, suffering the consequences of a world gone mad. So if that's true, how have we misread what Jesus was saying so badly? I think part of it is in this, what I think is fascinating point that John Golden Gay makes about what abandonment would have meant to the writer of Psalm 22. He writes, the fundamental theme of this psalm is really that of seeking God and of finding God. The fundamental theme of this psalm is really that of seeking God and of finding God. If, and this is the important part, if we understand it in Hebrew terms, not our own. Seeking God in those terms means seeking to get God to act. And finding God is reaching that goal. Seeking and finding are not merely spiritual inward acts of ours. To put it another way, the psalm is not asking that Yahweh be present with the suffering person merely in the sense of giving them a sense of God's presence. Abandonment lies in failing to act on the suppliant's behalf. In other words, Psalm 22 is not primarily about God's presence, but God's action. Is God or is God not going to act to deliver? Jesus is saying, because I know you are with me and because I know who you are, Father, I know you will not leave me abandoned. I know you will act to deliver me and I will wait for you to do so. We, of course, know that didn't happen that day, but it did happen three days later. This is what trust looks like in a world gone mad, not relying for deliverance on our power, our money, our candidate having won the election, whichever empty idols we might use to try and deliver ourselves from suffering and make ourselves believe that it's going to be okay. It will be okay because we trust in a God who does not abandon us, no matter what, even when, especially when the world has gone mad. We trust in a God who has delivered, who has rescued, who has freed, who has saved time and time again, and who will do so again. Maybe not the way we expect, but God will act. In the context of a world gone mad, Golden Gay writes, the psalm invites us to bear in mind a different set of facts, a different reality. First, we remind God and ourselves of God's past acts of deliverance towards the people of God. Second, we remind God and ourselves of God's involvement in our own individual lives from the moment of our birth. Third, we explicitly urge God to change, to be near to act rather than far away doing nothing. And fourth, we believe our own argument. That's what it means to follow Jesus into a world gone mad. 
We remember who God has been to God's people throughout history, to us in our own lives. We remind ourselves and God of those facts. And then we ask God to do it again.